in order for you to become fully man, <laughs> you have to become a woman first. <laughs> and and at the time when you said it, I I I got it here. I the concept I understood. I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. But it wasn't on. It's taken these past three years for me to actually embody that and to see the value in that. And man, if you don't choose it consciously, it's good. It's it's going to happen to you. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Chet. In this episode, Paul talks with strongman, strength coach, and successful business owner, Elliot Hulse. Elliot is a true underdog story of a self-made entrepreneur who overcame learning disabilities and disadvantages to become one of the most prolific visionary leaders to a generation of men. So Elliot, uh, Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. It's just lovely to have you as my guest. Man, it's such an honor to be here. This is like beyond a dream come true. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, for a guy like you to say that, that's fun. You know, uh, I've known you for a number of years now. How many? I don't know, but quite a number. And uh, we spent some time together, worked together. Uh, you've done HLC 1, 2, and 3, and... So it's it's uh it's been amazing for me to watch your own evolution. I think I remember when you first started uh putting a lot of media out there on YouTube and um you know really growing your audience and uh it's quite amazing for me to see the impact that you've had on people especially young men. I uh I couldn't even count the number of people that have left messages on my YouTube site saying they came there uh, due to your reference, occasionally we get them in in uh, HLC or Czech practitioner training because they were inspired by you. So it, it's uh, you know it, it's certainly clear to me that you're living your dream. I would just love to know what is your dream? What inspires you to to do all this? Certainly, you know, as a guy that <laughs> knows what hard work is all about, you're you're in the thick of it. So what what kind of what would you say is Elliot's dream for his work and, and what he's bringing to the world and what inspires you to do all this? Well, I'm delivering my consciousness to the planet. That was, that was actually told to me. Uh, I got into astrology these past few years. Yeah. And I have a, a teacher who teaches what she calls uh, cosmic consciousness, which is a, an, an evolved form of astrology where all of the horoscopes have different like the, the archetypes are upgraded. Yeah. But anyway, she did a chart reading for me once. And, uh, and basically it was about, you know, my dream. What was my soul's dream? Yeah. Not my ego's dream because my ego's had lots of different dreams. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my ego's dreams just, you know, depending on the day sometimes. Yeah. But uh, it seems as if what my soul set out to do, it's unfolding that way. And that was to deliver whatever is going on in here to the world and like you and I both knew uh, didn't know that the internet was gonna and YouTube was gonna be a thing I mean when I found you I was 23 years old I was watching you on VHS yes <laughs> yeah so uh, I had no idea that it was gonna take on that form yeah what you know you're in sort of a the same predicament that I am in many ways when it comes to uh 
people trying to define who you are or what you teach. You know, for me, Mm -hmm. people think I'm a Swiss ball guy if they've seen Swiss ball videos. I'm a back guy if they've seen back training and it ranges. So I get all these different approaches, some of which make me laugh when people describe who I am. I'm curious, what, how does Elliot Hulse describe who he is if someone says, well, who is Elliot Hulse? What, what is he about? I mean, how do you put yourself into a context? For example, I tell people I'm a holistic health practitioner because that's really the core essence of what I do. And it covers all the things that I do. But you have a background in, in being a strongman, a, a trainer, a conditioning specialist, uh, a motivational speaker. Uh, I mean, a lot of things. So how do you put Elliot Hulse into a, 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 you know, a deliverable package that somebody can um, grab onto? I've been trying to figure that out since I was in elementary school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, what am I? That was one of the questions that a lot of the kids we used to ask me. I grew up in Long Island, a suburb of New York City. And uh, apparently Long Island's one of the most socioeconomically segregated suburbs in you know the world, in the country. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there clearly there were black people and white people. There were like Haitian and Jamaican and Irish and Italian and Jewish. And the list goes on and on. And everybody kind of knew where they belonged. Everybody fit into a sort of a category, even like in high school, you know, the tables would be segregated. Yeah. And me being of mixed race from the, like I said, the time I was like six years old, the kids were asking me like, Elliot, what are you? Yeah. And that is actually the question that led me to start looking into philosophy and religion and quantum physics and these things. When I was probably in uh, seventh grade, that question, I mean, it, it just imprinted itself in my heart that I was, remember going through the library one day and finding a book by, I think it was a Rollo May called Man, uh, Who Are You Really? I think was the name of the book. And, uh, and he dived into religion and quantum physics and, you know, all these things that are transcendent of, of course, you know, what I do or what I look like or who I am. Yeah. And uh, that that gave me freedom to be the limitlessness that I really am. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, I understand because I feel the same way in many ways. It's just hard to convey to others. Uh, for example, I'll say it another way. If, if somebody was to approach one of your students and say, who is Elliot Hulse and why should I listen to his material or attend one of his workshops, what would your dream be for how they would respond to the question? Mm, Elliot Hulse is a, is a mentor. I've, I'm a mentor. I'm a teacher. I, I, I lead men by example. You know, more than a verbal teacher, I realize that it's, it is my example as a man, as a father, as an entrepreneur, as a strong man, as an athlete, as a coach. It's the way I live rather than um, what I say or, or, or the, any agenda that I have. That's one of the things that, uh, that is new for me and that has really been very liberating yeah. is not having an agenda. But uh, if people were to, yeah, if someone else were to explain what kind of agenda does it look like this guy is on, <laughs> I'm a mentor. <laughs> yeah, I'm a mentor. Great. You're just making me think of things I'm writing down to include in our dialogue because uh, – as I was sitting down writing all these questions out for you this morning, 
which I never finished the list, but I have plenty in my <laughs> head. Um, one of the topics that came up had to do with mentoring. Maybe I'll ask it right now since we're talking about it. In the hero's journey, uh, finding your mentor is really one of the critical stages um, simply because most people that enter the hero's journey are on a quest, as you know, and in order for us to accomplish something greater than ourselves, we usually need to find somebody who has already walked the path into that level of greatness or that expression of themselves. How do you feel, uh, what do you feel about the state that young men are in with regard to finding authentic mentors out there today? Well, you know, I, I use myself as an example. And when I was at that critical age, I think that there are, of course, there are multiple critical ages, but I think that, you know, 12, between 12 and 14, and then again, 23, 24, when I was about 23, 24, you became the mentor in mm. this journey, this hero's journey that I was going on, which I started, but then it was like, Things accelerated when I came in touch with your VHSs, with your with your videos. I mean, I I didn't meet you till maybe ten years later, but yeah. it was it was devouring all the information that was available out there that you put there on these tapes. And so, with that being said, I think that because the internet, which t took that to another level, is available now, means that well the amount of mentors that are accessible are, you know, a, a thousandfold compared to just 10 years ago. Now the quality, quantity is there, but quality, yeah. well, you know, when you, when you have that amount of quantity, uh, you're going to get, you're going to get a broad spectrum there also too. So the choices that are available for men, there are more, but there may be more confusion as a result. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, because the, the, the key thing that you've already kind of alluded to is authenticity. Uh, what I see is we have a lot of uh, pop-up mentors or someone who's read a couple of articles on a subject and thinks they're an expert, so they market themselves. And, and so it seems as though we have, uh, you know, it looks to the, to the uninitiated like, oh, that could be my mentor, but the depth is very shallow. And that's one of the problems with the uh, internet age is that people can um, present themselves in ways that can be a bit uh, elusive compared to actually, you know, spending time doing a workshop or uh, having interaction with them where they help you through legitimate life challenges. And, mm -hmm. and, even though this question is not what I wrote down, I'm just curious. When when you um, identified me as a potential mentor, uh, you, like you said, there was a number of years of tapes there, but you did do a fair bit of training with me and worked with me personally for a while. What what do you think I passed on to you as a mentor that gave you some footing or some traction that turned out to be productive and useful that you now pass on to others? Oh, Paul, well, where do I begin? I, I think you're the first person that I saw that made it cool to me 
to be intelligent. You know, I grew up with, <laughs> yeah. And so not only that, but you're like muscular. So here's this, this buff dude. And you know, you, this, these videos were a lot a long time ago. So you were a lot bigger. Yeah. And I'm like, where's this buff dude talking like Einstein? I was like, that is the, in a world where I've never really fit in. And I mm. kind of, I'm on both ends of the spectrum in many different things. When I saw you, it was like a reflection of me. I was like, that was that was something that I wanted to aspire to was to be someone that's a meathead, a strong man, but also can speak. So less of the content, you know, the content that you provided was very valuable, but who you were being mm. in that moment was one of the invited me to read more. You know, I was, I, I read, I, I mean, I read that book in seventh grade about, uh, you know, discovering yourself, but I wasn't like a prolific reader. And it wasn't until I became a student of yours. And I also was very good friends with one of your, one of your top level students. And he had a huge library. And I remember seeing pictures of you with uh, libraries behind you and you're always referencing books. And so again, less than what you were saying, it was the fact that you were being this, type of person that I, that I could aspire to be. That's fantastic. Well, that gives me, you know, a sense of uh, gratification because you've obviously really made a huge impact in the world. And one of the joys I've had actually is there's actually quite a number of my students now. Um, you, you and JP Sears, I think are probably the most well-known of my students, but I've had the joy of watching many of them reach very elite levels, whether it be working on professional sports teams or being parts of major corporations. One of my clients who's worked with me for five years started a, a whole university program for consciousness studies at the University of uh, Virginia or West Virginia, I can't remember, but he uh, funded and started an entire university consciousness studies program that's going strong today. And I've had many students that have come up with uh, healthy whole foods and like uh, ice cream and uh, meat packing organizations. And uh, many of them have started organic farms and uh, resorts all over the world. So uh, there's been a lot of them. But I have to say, uh, between you and J.P. Sears, I think you guys, you know, you know, like at the old fair at the fairs where you used to go swing the sledgehammer and try to ring the bell. Mm -hmm. You guys have rung the bell pretty good, um, mm -hmm. which, which leads me to my next question. Um, you know, how important do you feel, you know, in the Czech system, I have one, two, three, four as sort of our grounding practice, one love. What is your dream that's worth living and growing for to where you out of balance with the forces of nature, yin and yang? Three, what choices are you willing to make to live, dream affirmatively, and four doctors? What do you, how do you feel, how important do you feel it is for people in general or specifically young men to have some sort of a defined dream goal or objective to organize them and move them forward? Well, I started looking into the archetype of initiation uh, just a few years ago, maybe about three, four years ago, when I started to find myself going into what I call the tunnel. 
you yeah. know, and it's in when I met you, uh, when my brother and I came and visited you for the second time and we did painting, Yeah. Uh, you mentioned something about my painting. You interpreted it by saying it looks like something's being digested. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I didn't get it at the time. I didn't know what you were talking about. I was just like, okay. But l- literally that, that, those few days or the, those weeks surrounding that literally propelled me into a, a a tunnel experience is the way I like to describe it, where I've been going through a deep transmutation. And uh, so I, I became interested in, in, in uh, initiation. What is it for a young man to be initiated into manhood? And then I realized I was going into initiation into a different step, a different kind of manhood, a more evolved, a, a mature manhood. And uh, so anyway, in, that, in those studies, I, I learned that... Uh, our ancestors would have through cross cultural cross culturally they would have two steps that were always necessary for initiation to take place number 1 is separation from the world of the mother yeah and and then step 2 would be atonement with the father and what i've learned is that it was essential not only for the boy to be you know removed from the society removed from the mother removed from a version of himself that he once knew, but introduced to all of the stories, all of the mythologies, all of the religion, all of the meaning that was critical for him to uh, to believe in and to participate in. So that when he went back into life, went back into the world, he had instruction. He it really was it was an opportunity for him to transcend himself and, and, and live for the bigger picture. Yeah. And so that was the, that was the, the mission. That was the goal. That was the dream was to be a, a part of the society, but also uh, being initiated into your role, your, your, your position, your, uh, your stance. So I, I think that there was a lot of wisdom to our ancestors in this process. Yeah. And it's kind of a, it's been a loss because we don't have it any longer. But to answer your question, uh, I think it would be critical for us to go back to a time when we were given more meaning to our lives and, uh, and thereby having more of a mission to live by. Yeah. Two things come to mind. The, 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 you mentioned two key factors of initiation, removal from the mother atoning with the father the third is giving of yourself for the whole whether it be the tribe the culture the society but basically transcending the i needs and the i focus of the child to sacrificing oneself even if it means dying for the greater good uh, to protect the tribe or protect the uh, you know family in our in our culture but the the um you know, most of these initiation rites for young men especially included uh, a lot of very interesting tactics to, uh, well, expose them to pain and to deep challenge. Some of them, you know, uh, ceremonies would be the tribe would line up, create a, a pathway, and they would the adults would hold big sticks, and the initiate would have to run through the path and get to the other end, and they would try to beat that person to the edge of their life, not to <laughs> just, just enough not to uh, permanently damage them, but enough that they really had to go beyond themselves to make the journey. And I've seen 
pictures where they're just crawling and getting beaten in, in the last few meters and they have to make that or they don't pass their trial. Uh, some of them would be given vision quests where they would be taken out to places like the edge of a cliff where there would be a rock circle and the uh, shaman would induce uh, a strong psychedelic and they would not be allowed to leave the circle uh, for as many days as it took until they had a vision for their life. And that, you know, can be, as you can imagine, you get a good dose of uh, mushrooms or a psychedelic in you and, and your world can change quite radically and you can be exposed to your unconscious quite heavily. So they would have to stay in that circle and they'd have to pee in there, poop in there, and they generally just had water, no food. So there's certainly that giving of oneself. And, and one of the things that I've watched, and as you know, I too work with a lot of young men in my work. I've seen that there's still a real problem in our culture. For example, being raised on a farm like I was, there was no question, you know, you, my father uh, made the rules and you followed them or you entered that initiation all over again. But there was a real sense of responsibility. Like I had to feed the animals and water the animals. We all did before we got to eat. It would be a very bad idea to show up at the breakfast table and for my father to find any animals untended to or or crops or whatever was going on. But what I see today is that we have, uh, you know, almost like the archetype is called the Perry Turnus. Are you familiar with that one? No. It means the eternal oh, child. Oh, Eternus? Perry Turnus. Query Turnus? Yeah, it means eternal boy or eternal child. Yes. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that we are really in an odd situation where a lot of our youth are still haven't. Uh, let go of mommy, daddy support, haven't, even though they might be 23, 24, 25, even 30, they're still using mom's and dad's credit cards. Whenever they get in trouble, it's mommy and daddy bails them out. I really see that there's a challenge with our young men stepping into their adult shoes and accepting adult responsibility, um, even on their own accord, just because they can, and it should, it should be a natural uprising in us to individuate, step away from mom and dad's control. But I see almost like these extended puberties going on. Uh, I'm wondering if you've got any observations in that regard. Yeah, uh, I do. And I'll use myself as an example. Uh, you know, I got married very early. I got, I got married and started having children at 24. And so I was uh, thrust into the world with the, with the weight to carry of raising a family. I was, I was $90,000 in, in, uh, in consumer debt after college, and I still had college loans. I had Colleen's college loans, and I decided I wanted to start my own business. And it was almost like a self-initiation, but I don't think it would have I, I would have been nearly as successful through it if I didn't have the pressure of being growing up very quickly. You had to be a, I had to become a man, yeah. you know, at twenty at twenty four years old. And I, you know, 
I see the value in young people today taking their time and, you know, exploring life. And, you know, there are things that maybe I wasn't able to explore or to experience because I got married so early. But I became a man very quickly because I had the responsibilities that were associated with what a man had. And so what I often advise or uh, invite young people to do when they're uh, confused in this way is to do something that is that requires you to be responsible. Do something scary. Sometimes I say, you know, move out of your parents' house and live in your car. I've made videos like this where, you know, people would have thought I was nuts, but it is. it would be better to leave your mother's home and go live in your car, go live on the road, be homeless. It's I think it's okay to be homeless, especially in America. You really have food stamps, you have food banks. Most homeless people are, are overweight. There are a lot of homeless people that have more, that eat more than you know than, than people <laughs> who are living in homes. Um, so going to the military is another one that's like kind of an initiation. You know, whether or not you agree with the American or foreign policy or not. It's an opportunity. Like my nephew recently, like uh, he's been having a hard time, and you know he's 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 in his early twenties, and his mom is a mom. That's what moms are supposed to do. But as a young man, you got to get away from your mom. Yeah. And really, the only option for him was to go into the military. You know, as much as he was resisting it. So I think these things, just taking on responsibility, being when I got married and started having children, it's because I'm either courageous or crazy. But you got to do something courageous or crazy that forces you to man up. Yeah. Well, I, I, I don't know if you remember, but I had my first son, Paul Jr., who's 39 now, two weeks after I turned 18. And <laughs> both, both of our parents were broke, Sue's and my parents. So I had – my ego was too big to collect welfare. So mm-hmm. – and having been raised on a farm and – been exposed to uh, operating machines, welding, uh, mechanical work, uh, woodwork. I had a lot of general skills. And because we had contractors now and then come to the farm, I already knew I could do the work of a man. And as kids, we went and helped the local farmers. If a storm came and hay was getting rained on, we had to have an emergency hay party, you know, and get thousands of bales of hay out of the field real quick before it all goes moldy and you lose your hay for a whole season. So I, I learned early that I could work, you know, even at 12 years of age, I could outlift hay bales next to full grown men. And they would always look at all of my family, all of our kids, because my dad worked us like slave sled dogs, you know, and he's like, (laughs) they'd be like, Jesus, Murphy, these kids are strong. But so, yeah, there is, there is that there. I, I know for myself, uh, my parents' rule was you can only live in the house if you're in school. The day you quit school, you leave the house. Mm-hmm. And I hated school. I just, it just <laughs> drove me nutty. I, I won't go into a long story about it. But so I left when I was 16. Uh, I only ended up with a ninth grade education. But the point I'm leading to is I had the urge to just completely get away from parental control. And it, it, it was like, I'm, I remember from as early as 12 years old, I cannot wait for the day I can leave and go do what I want to do and, you know, be myself in the world instead of constantly being controlled. And so Mm -hmm. having lived that urge myself, 
it's very interesting for me to see so many young men and even women. I don't see it quite so much in the girls, but I do see it a lot in the young men, how they, it's almost as though they're comfortable just um, kind of having, uh, well, I don't even know if they consciously think it, but it's as though they're very comfortable staying. I mean, I, I have, I've had, I had a client not too long ago that consulted me that was like 35 and still living with mom and, yeah. and in the house. And I see so much of that. It's, it's just interesting to me. I, I don't know what to attribute it to. It could be lower testosterone levels due to all the estrogens in the food supply and all the medical drugs and things like that. But I just, uh, find it very interesting, but, um, it certainly does lead to some inner challenges I've noticed with young men. Uh, I think that there's a, I think that there's a, a an unconscious drive, something inside of us that lets us know the importance of individuation, the importance of moving on, the importance of contributing to something bigger than yourself. And I, I see in a lot of the young men that consult with me, and of course, you know, many of them take my courses and right in the courses, we're breaking cases down, including many of them. And it, it, it seems that there's, I've observed that there's a fair bit of um, angst in them, um, a sense of urgency that they don't know what to do with, as though part of them knows they need to go out into the world and be a man, but the other part of them either doesn't know how or is afraid to or is so comfortable with the support from mom and dad and whatever else that they can't seem to cross that threshold. Have you observed that at all, that, that sort of inner awareness but not knowing how to deal with it yeah i think a lot of it has to do with their way where you know there's so many factors i recently re read a really good book called the uh the crisis of boys i think it, it think it is and it goes he goes through all of the different reasons why men are suffering and why the suicide rate is out the off the roof and things of that nature but the way we're trained in school uh, to, to get everything right, to do everything right, not to mess up, not to fail, not to make any mistakes, kind of gets people trapped in this paralysis of analysis whereby they're too afraid to take any risks. Yeah. And so moving out of your mom's house it, is a risk. Starting a, new, a business is a risk. Yeah. Being with a woman is all risk. Yeah. So a lot of times these guys, because they're so tippy-toe-ish about not making a mistake or doing the wrong thing, uh, they just end up not doing anything. Well, you know, uh, you know, I'm an art therapist and uh, it's been pretty amazing. I've done quite a large number of courses that HLC3 used to include mandala therapy in it. Um, I had to stop doing it, though, because it was causing such uh, powerful emotional openings and bringing the unconscious up and, and uh, unleashing trauma that hadn't yet been dealt with that sometimes the way we would do it is we would do a mandala it might take you know six hours or four hours to do the mandala but then I would let everybody come up in front of the room and share what their experience was or what they were trying to convey if they could understand it and people would go into downright you know emotional catharsis and healing um healing processes and, and tears and sometimes literally laying on the floor shaking because so much of the pain was coming out of them, which is what ultimately led me into mandala work myself. I uh, 
used to study with a very famous and highly skilled shaman named Rowena Kreider, who was also a master artist and a musician and a mathematician, probably had about nine PhDs. This woman was just off the Richter scale, lived in a tent for seven years on Mount Shasta doing healing work for nature and things like that. But my first week-long workshop with her in a beautiful house she'd built up in Colorado she built it by hand, actually. Uh, amazing freaking house. I mean, just blow your socks off. To know that a 76-year-old woman built this house by hand is enough to spin the heads of even a strong man because you'd <laughs> look at what she did and like, oh, my God, this is crazy. But uh, she uh, had us do a mandala as part of our work there. And I'll tell you what, man, it... it it changed me for the rest of my life, and it made me so interested. Not only did it trigger a, a massive outpouring of art, which still continues to this day, and this is probably around the year 2000 that I was with her, but it it made me very curious about art therapy, which led to an extensive study of art therapy and the use of art therapy. But the point that I'm really leading to is many times I would I would have young men and women and they would absolutely be paralyzed. They could not put anything on a piece of paper. They would, some of them couldn't even draw the circle. And when I would talk to them and, and you know, teach them how to connect to their soul, how to get guidance and all the things that I teach, the number one issue that came up was they had been reprimanded as a child because their art didn't look very good. Mm. And or they were so heavily graded in elementary school, high school, college that now they were afraid to express anything for fear that I would grade their art in front of class. <laughs> so they were locked in a total paralysis of fear of judgment, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think I think you'd agree with me that life is a form of artistic expression. Yeah, absolutely. And so the same paralysis of expressing oneself in art becomes a fear to dance, a fear to sing, a fear to make music, uh, sometimes a fear to make love, a fear to, mm -hmm. like you said, step into the unknown and just go for it. So it's, it, 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 well, I guess it's just good that you're out there and, and there's people like us that are really creating systems to help support people in their growth. Because I, I think you'd probably agree we've got some real adult issues happening in the world that are going to require, you know, an all hands on deck approach here. If we don't pull mm -hmm. our heads out of our fourth point of contact, there's just too many systems that are right on the edge of collapsing. And mm -hmm. the, the ecosystem is one of them, right? There's, you know, we don't need to go into, I won't bore you with a long eco story, but mm -hmm. I mean, from banking systems to educational systems, to political systems, to environmental systems, to the food, even gender, gender, food value, uh, food quality, food chemicals, the medical system, the vaccination issues, the mm -hmm. um, banking system. Um, you know, it, it's, it's as though complexity has reached a point where the foundation won't hold it up anymore. It's almost like mm -hmm. the pendulum is now inverted where we used to have natural practices driven by the seasons and the need to stay connected to nature. 
as people are getting things off of Amazon, most people don't have a clue where their food come from. They don't know how anything's made. It's just magic. You press a button, it shows up at your door, and you have no idea what the impact of that purchase or those dollars mm -hmm. is on the world. And, and you know, for me, I my I think you know I have a, a two year old and two years and nine month old boy, and Angie's now pregnant with uh, nine weeks pregnant with a, another one. So when I look and and think, <laughs> congrats! Yeah, it's it's it was a surprise, but it's a good one. I look and say, okay, what's happened in my fifty seven years of life? I mean. You know, when I was a young kid, Vietnam was going on. There was, you know, I remember when faxes first came out. I remember mm -hmm. when cell phones first came out. Cell phones used to be huge, man. They like like like, yeah. like like a brick and they weighed like five pounds, you know. And um and, and I remember I remember when the first computers came out, and I remember the first time I used a computer. And so when you see the rate that information technology is progressing and you think what we've seen in our own lifetime, and I'm even a generation before you, what our kids are going to go through in the next 50 years is almost hard to even imagine because of the changes in the environment, the changes in technology. So it's, it's, it's kind of almost like a, well, it's, it's, for me, it's a bit, concerning it's like how do you prepare a child for the world they're about to enter into a good example is you know mm -hmm. we send mana to a steiner school and they don't want them having anything to do with televisions or ipads or anything for the first seven years mm -hmm. so w when angie was in the interview to see if he could get accepted they they said are you willing to comply to that and she said no i'm not she said he, he does use an iPad and he uses it to watch games and he watches educational programs, but he's very capable of playing and being self-sufficient. He's not addicted to it. He'll shut it off by himself and he loves to be outside. And, and Angie's key point was, I don't want my child to not interface with the technology that's inherently going to be essential <laughs> to his own ability to, to live and work in the world that he's growing into. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't want him to become a techno addict either and miss out on life. And, mm -hmm. and interestingly, the, the uh, lady interviewing said, well, we'll accept that. That's, we'll let you go on that one. But she was really worried she might not get him in there because of that. So I don't know. What, what, do you, what rises up in you hearing me talk about these things? And how do you feel about your kids and, and what they might go through? And what way are you imparting wisdom to them to prepare them for the magnitude of the changes they might go through? Yeah, we are definitely straddling two ages. And so it's like as the sun sets on one age and it's rising for another, all of the structures that that dictated the way we thought, the way we lived, the things that we valued are completely anti-structure now. You know, you think like daytime as structure and nighttime as anti-structure. We're totally living in the darkest, in a dark time, meaning yeah. that there's a tremendous amount of anti-structure. Things are, are breaking down. And uh, given that, you know, I was thinking about uh, what you were saying earlier and how we were talking about, you know, uh, people become locked and stuck in the judgments that are associated with the structure of school. Yeah. And uh, 
And all I could think of was coloring outside the lines or anti-structure being, being the, you know, almost like how a tree or plants grow out of soil and soil is, is, is broken down. You know this better than anybody. Yeah. It's, it's broken down uh, organic material. It was one thing, but now it's, it's a lot of different things. Yeah. But in order for the tree to grow, in order for that soil to nurture the tree, um, it has to be all that dead organic material. It has to be all that broken down, anti-structure, dark stuff. Yeah. And so, and you know, it's unconscious, you know, the darkness is unconscious. And as, as we're living in, in a way, you know, you, it's also pregnant with what's available. Yeah. But, uh, at this, at that time, or given that analogy, almost anything that we say or do or try to project or try to make happen or try to see into uh, into reality, I think is is us uh, mental masturbation. I think we're playing with ourselves because all we can do to project into the future is to take old stuff from the past. Mm-hmm. And so, anything that I can imagine for what is right or what should be or how they should proceed or what to do just comes from my old conditioning, from the old structure that is, you know, we're in the middle of right now. We're in the middle of it deconstructing. So the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. You know, and anytime that I try to know, I know that I'm, the minute the words come out of my mouth or the minute the, the opportunity to correct my children or to point away, even though I still do it and I have my own values by which I choose to do it, I know that I'm, as much as I'm right in my, my assertions, I'm also equally wrong in my assertions. So <laughs> the way I deal with it is just, be present in the moment for what's needed as far as instruction is concerned and roll with it. And yeah. Just cross my fingers and hope that I'm doing the right thing. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's all any of us can do, especially in an unstable environment because we're really kind of like surfers out on the ocean and it, and we never really know what the next wave's going to be like. You you hope that it's a good one and you hope that it's rideable and it's not so big it's going to kill you or so little that it's boring, but we 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 you know, in, in from a quantum physical perspective, we are living on a wave, you know, we're we're moving with the great wave of the universe. Um it's uh if you have a if you had to say well if you were to put yourself into the mindset of the young people of the world today to try to surmise what might be the kind of collective nightmare amongst these young people what scares them the most what do you think is sort of a ubiquitous fear for young people today well, I think that because the 60s and 70s and, you know, you, like through the 90s brought us such deconstruction of the structure. I mean, it really like that was when things started really disintegrating societally. And so, you know, the sexual revolution and, you know, all these divergent ideas and the breakdown of the church. And so with that, it's interesting to see that the, the next generation, I truly believe this is going to be the case, but this is also what's being uh, observed by people who study this kind of thing. They're becoming more conservative. Mm-hmm. The new generation is going to be, they're going to, they're going to thirst for structure where 
my generation, you know, I grew up as a baby boomer. We li- I came through the generation of anti-structure. Mm-hmm. who was rebel against everything. Everything is, is, is up for question. Nothing is right. Nothing is true. No- and so you know, that brought us a lot of liberal values, social values. Um, I'm, there's great value in a lot of that because structures need to be broken down in order for something else to be built up. But I think the, I think that's wearing on them and maybe making them feel unstable mm-hmm. and unsure. The parents are unsure. Parents have no values. The world, it seems like the country has no values. The world has no, there are no strong values. Anything that's proposed as a value is usually cut down by any end of the spectrum. An atheist will cut you down and a, and a Christian will cut you down. So it seems like we have no collective values. And so as that, as the structure, as the world and the next generation creates the new structure, they're the ones that are going to be saying yes and no to, to chaos. Yeah. They're They're going to, they're going to create the new rules and the new values. And it's interesting to see that now, uh, two things that really strike me with regard to the conservatism of, uh, you know, post millennials and, you know, children, the, the young people now, is that they're having less sex. They're less sexually uh, promiscuous. I'd say, you know, I think my generation was the most sexually promiscuous in America, since, you know, according to this article. Um, and they're becoming, of course, there's a great divide, but it's interesting to see this, to see this rise in nationalism. And so, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of young people are becoming American national. I think Donald Trump has a lot to do with it because Donald Trump gave a lot of people that had that weren't sure about anything, something to be sure about. Whether or not you agree with the values, yeah. it, it is a value, and it's to believe in and be firm. And I think they're gonna, they're gonna, they like that. It seems. Well, that brings up your um, help. You're moving me forward in my questions, but I'm I'm gonna point out one thing and then ask you something else that I think is very deep and relevant to this. Um, you know, you, you've worked with me, you know, I use an adult attachment interview to look into your parental relationships, sibling relationships to see where there are, uh, developmental forces or factors that may be affecting the way a person's relating to the world or why they're having key challenges in relationships to self or others. But having studied a fair bit of the research on attachment syndromes and, and looking at what a secure attachment is, an interesting observation, and Dan Siegel makes this in one of his uh, books, he points this out. When they analyze a large amount of data looking into attachment syndromes, which uh, for those that aren't familiar with that, it has to do with how well the child bonds to its parents. And are you familiar with how they do this attachment research at all? No. So what they do is they take a child and usually it's the mother, but it can be the mother or father, or it can be both parents in some studies. They, they do it a variety of different ways. If they want it to be more controlled, it'll be just mom or just dad. So they can measure the reaction to each individual parent, but they'll take the child into um, and the mother into a room where they have cameras set up. And it looks kind of like your room usually. There, there's toys on the ground, colorful things. Typically, these children are about two years of age. 
then the mother will just say goodbye to the child and walk out the door and they film how the child responds while the mother's gone. And after a given number of minutes, the mother will come and they'll film how the child reacts to mother's re-entry into the room. So what they find with secure attachment is that the child is not fussed or afraid when mom leaves. It usually just makes itself busy playing with whatever it can find with. When mom comes back, it'll often get up, go go to mommy, make contact, but then just go right back to playing without any problem. So that's called a secure attachment. Then they monitor, for example, if the child gets nervous when mom's come back comes back, or if the child goes into an emotional upheaval when mom walks out of the room and screams and runs to the door and, you know, can't make it without mommy. Um, and I won't go through all the attachments. Actually, I've got, if you're interested, there's a summary of them in my current series, The Seven A's of Healing, which I think might be uh, part number five, where I outline each of the uh, attachment syndromes relative to secure attachment. But what they found out uh so what the what the consensus when they look at what is the most common issue that leads to faulty attachment or an attachment syndrome is parents without a clear sense of direction in their lives hmm so it's it's interesting for me because number 1 in the check system is having a dream and values that support it so ultimately, what the research shows is that when parents don't have a mission or a vision for their life and for to share with the kids in a set of values, that the children get very insecure about everything and don't feel safe even with their own parents. So, you know, when you think of all the hmm. things, when you look at all the things that you've just shared with regard to parents and the way things are going down and the change of the environment, and you look at you know, for example, a few years ago, I saw research looking into the finances of, of people, and it showed that about 95 to 98% of the U.S. population is two paychecks from bankruptcy. So if you imagine the psychological state of a parent who's living that close to financial devastation, not being able to pay for food, for homes, for medical, it has to pass on to their children. Mm -hmm. So... When you are working with young men uh, or young people in general, uh, what's your sense of their sense of having a sense of direction or having values for themselves? In other words, are they expressing the, what the research suggests, that there's a lot of parents that are lost in the world with children in tow, or do you see that they're able to sort of point the arrow or steer the boat and have a sense of how to make decisions for themselves. Interesting because it's uh, it's a lot of both, meaning like I've seen both extremes. And on one extreme, it's incredible how many young people are so, they're so firm in their new choices and in their new values. Uh, almost like how you and I were talking earlier before about th those type of young men like ourselves who couldn't wait to get out so that they can build their own structures so they can have their own experience yeah. and so that they can have direction. You know, yeah. it was very exciting yes. to do that. So I see a lot of that and I'm very impressed by that because a lot of the young people, even more so than I was at that age because of the access to the information and, 
and different values. You know, before the internet and, you know, before the information age, let me put it that way, whatever values the church had and that your parents had and that the community had was, I mean, you're kind of limited to, to, to exposure yeah. to, you know, to what was there. Now, uh, you know, it's not always good, but there are, there are so many different, uh, values and, and examples for, for, uh, for how to live that, uh, it's, it's fascinating to see how young people are like, there's so much, many of them are much more wise than I was at that age because of so much that they, uh, they can, that they're exposed to. Um, but then on the other end, going back to what we were talking about, in terms of those that just can't can't get it together uh yeah i'm not so sure if if you know i can't really comment on how their experience was with their parents or whether or not that was you know that their parents had no sense of uh mission i think a lot of them their parents their sense of mission maybe just didn't hold the same sort of they didn't they didn't have the same values that they couldn't have the same values that their children have now. So, for example, entrepreneurship is like exploding because of the Internet. So yeah. many young people are able to start businesses where their parents hadn't. They, they couldn't. They just mm. absolutely couldn't, given the circumstances. Now, with the Internet, a lot of them, a lot of young people have the opportunity to take up careers and uh, and and uh, and. Path, paths that just weren't available to their parents. Yes. And so with the ones that are, um, that, that are wavering, sometimes I think there are too many options. There are too many paths. There, it almost becomes confusing. You know, we were talking before about their inability to make a choice. Well, there is like so many choices now that, uh, that, that actually causes them not to take any action also too. Well, you know, that, that I think lends itself hand in hand with my statement earlier that the complexity has reached a point now where it has to break down into simplicity or it can't go on. And mm -hmm. years ago, it, it was an interesting experience for me, probably around 2005, I started having Czech level four practitioners and highly skilled, highly intelligent people that had spent years studying with me saying to me, Paul, you know, you teach us so much stuff, I feel paralyzed sometimes because I have, I can assess people for eight hours straight and I don't know where to start with someone or which things to do or not to do. And it's hard to contain the volume of information in all your teachings. And, you know, it would be one thing if I heard that from like a first year student or somebody who didn't come from maybe an exercise or healthcare background or had no knowledge of anatomy, but I'm hearing this from some of the people that I highly respect as very, very intelligent students and instructors. And that's what ultimately led me to long conversations with my soul about how do I synthesize this so that what I do inside of myself as a therapist or a coach or a counselor or a teacher can be um, utilized by my students. And that's ultimately what led to the four doctor system. And, and the, there was a series of meditations that went on for a good year before all of a sudden my soul said, get your notebook and start writing. And it all just congealed in, in literally in a five mile hike in the woods with a notebook. What I'd been meditating on to resolve for about a year 
came together. But the, the point I'm leading to is what did it lead to? It led to something that is very, very simple. What is the person's dream or nightmare or chief goal or objective that they're willing to focus their energies on? Where are they out of balance? So anyhow, I was saying that this the complexity led me into this investigation to say, well, what are the underlying principles that everybody has to understand to be effective in their own lives or as a therapist or a coach or anybody in leadership position, which which came out to be the one, two, three, four, one love, two forces, three choices, four doctors, which is the kind of the backbone of all of my teachings because they're universally applicable regardless of religion, creed, color, faith, uh, uh, career, those things. If we don't have those things in place, it leaves the door wide open for challenges. So the, the complexity of my own system which you could say mirrored the complexity of the health and exercise industries that I was growing in, led me back to simplicity. The problem with simplicity, as I'm sure you know, is it's it looks simple, but it's profound, right? Water mm-hmm. looks very simple, but people overlook it all the time, and they, they just assume it. But when you look at to the science of water, it's one of the most magical, mysterious uh elements that there is in in all of creation and you can spend the rest of your life studying water alone so it seems to be that we uh when you take everything we've been talking about from parents needing to have a sense of direction to having to figure things out to you know basically what you're saying is the menu is so big your people don't know what to order because there's too many menu items it seems like bringing simplicity back is critical for everybody at this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely would agree. My my question I wanted to ask you next is, if you look at the work of people like Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, James Hillman, James Hollis, and, and a number of others that are you know, reliable and very, very skilled in the understanding of mythology, and how the psyche is structured, one of the common themes, and I've probably got 50 books that highlight this, is that when a culture loses its myth, it's on its way into a a terminal situation, and and they Mm -hmm. analyze cultures in the past that lost their myth and how they basically cease to exist. Uh, I'm curious, if you had to take broad strokes and say, what is... What is the myth that our young culture is living? What, how would you paint that? The myth that we're currently... The myth that we're, we're currently uh, living is like consumerism. Yes. I would say. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because post-industrial revolution, all of our conditioning and all of our stories, all of our values have been uh, how to be factory workers and to be consumers. And we're like, we're literally robots at this point. And it's like, how, how can you be the best consumer? Yeah. And so, uh, you know, wherever there's a myth, there's a counter myth. So there's always oppositional forces emerging so you you know if you look at religion you could be uh you could swear up and down jesus is the only begotten savior but some along someone comes along and tells you all about buddha and challenges your belief system or 
you know, any number of factors. So the counter myth is usually something that isn't conscious, but it's producing symptoms of challenge because of the way you're living. What do you feel the counter myth that's emerging is? Uh, like the symptoms? Yeah, what do you the say s- the counter myth? Yeah, the, the, you know, for example, if someone thinks that they can do German volume training every day of the week, and that's their myth, the counter myth is that they're going to be in a lot of pain soon and suffer overtraining injuries. So if you, if, if, you, if you say capitalism is the myth, what do you believe the counter myth or the consequences of living that myth without enough depth perception is? Mm. Well, I, I, symptoms, I understand, you know, uh, when you're talking about it, and I'll describe some of the symptoms, but um, I'm, very, I'm very interested in the breakdown of gender. And how, as a result of consumerism, where it's the the more consumers, the better with regard to consumerism. So the more you can make people, more you can appeal to a broader range of people through commercials, the more customers you have, the more workers that you have. And so one of the breakdowns uh, that we're experiencing is, uh, is the breakdown of gender roles. Uh, this began when women went into the workforce, you know, yeah. and, and as empowering, as wonderful as that is, um, it also uh, it created more consumers, more workers and more consumers. So the powers to be gained. But then it also began to confuse. I mean, gender confusion began then. Yes. And now we're living we're living at like the height of it. So you went from, OK, women into the workforce. But now, for example, the Boy Scouts just filed bankruptcy. Because number one, well, really, because they started losing their values and uh, started accepting girls into the Boy Scouts. Mm. So one of the one of the symptoms is this sort of transgenderism, where men don't know what it is to be a man. Uh, they don't know how to feel like a man. They don't know what men are supposed to do, and women. The same thing. Women are, it's almost like it's crossing over where men are becoming more like women and women are becoming more like, like, like men. And it's not serving anyone. It's a lot of times it's positioned as progress. Yeah. But, but so much is lost. And, you know, so it's for there to be progress, there has to be, uh, the oppressed and the oppressor. Yeah. And so for, for the female, for the women to be the oppressed, but now being empowered, Little do they realize, and it's my opinion, but, you know, it's biological, that the greatest gift a woman can give is the gift of being a mother, giving life and nurturing. That's in their nature. It's in their biology. They're made that way. But mm-hmm. yet they're setting that aside with birth control pills and, and late, uh, you know, getting married late and being career women and giving up their femininity to to compete with boys <laughs> in, in what boys do. Well, absolutely. And there's something, <laughs> I don't know when the last, how, how old your youngest child? Eight. Okay. So I don't think this was going on quite so much then, but one of the things that Angie and Penny and I, because, you know, having a young one and being who I am and Angie, who she is, we surveyed all the approaches to birthing and, um, we looked into, uh, you know, all the relevant information that we needed, but 
one of the things, and Angie was a counselor on um, a website with like 140,000 women called whattoexpect.com. So she was, there was like 50,000 women in her group for having babies in this given time period. So they come on and they talk and they ask questions. And Angie was one of the women that would answer them. But one of the things that blew my mind and still does, and it's going on real heavy, is, and I don't know if you're aware of this, but a lot of women today choose to have a C-section scheduled on time that fits their work schedule because they don't want their vaginas stretched out. They don't want to take the time to go through a natural birth and they don't want the, um, they, they don't want the perceived changes in their aesthetics that they think might come from a natural childbirth. So now we have countless numbers of women all over the world who are avoiding the entire birthing process and scheduling it and handing their baby off to some nanny or nurse and going right back to work as a lawyer or a store shop owner. And it's, it's as though the, 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 the women have, they've lost touch. See, in most tribal cultures, the initiation right for a girl to become a woman is birth itself. And it's almost as though they're avoiding their own right of passage into womanhood from the perspective of developmental man or for, through through the history of what it means to be a man or a woman and how you go about preparing yourself for those responsibilities. But but there you I'm pointing that out because do you see how masculine that is, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's it's almost like I don't have time to be a woman because I'm too busy being a man. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a, funny because this rail against patriarch uh, patriarchy and you know the rise of uh, the divine feminine; these terms that are on people's lips, New Agers yeah. on their lips. I don't think they know what they're talking about because whip, empowered women don't look more like men. No, empowered women look a lot like real women. Not yes. what we're not what they're fighting for. I live with two empowered women. You know, I have two wives. You know that, and and I have. I honestly can say of all the women I know, they're two of the most amazing people I've ever met. And they both have strong work ethics. Um, They both have strong mothering ethics. Um, They're both very connected to the earth and to values. And fortunately for us, Penny's also a technological wizard. So she's got her head in the techno cloud, but her feet on the ground so it, I'm just saying I agree. I mean, I, when I think of the women that I really respect, they are women that have not lost touch with what it means to be a woman in the sense of being a woman. And they also, I don't know any of them that, that run around bashing men or think that there's any more problems with men than the sexual genders have always created. And, you know, I don't know if you know the the Greek, ancient Greek myth about when uh, human beings were spherical and the male and female components mm-hmm. were contained in the, in the myth. It was, they kept on, cause these little, they, they, they were called human beings, but they were so powerful. The gods found them irritating. So I think mm-hmm. it was, they, they kept trying to come up with a solution. And finally Zeus said, we'll just cut them in half. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so in the myth, the male and the female were divided and, and that began, you know, what we know as of this sort of odd 
sense of disconnection, yet something deep in us knows that we are truly one. And for example, when you're making love to your partner and you get into states of uh, heart harmony where there is no gender anymore, there's not a male or a female, there's not a me or a you, there's just this, you know, very much shamanic or open ended experience of complete oneness and unity where we're back to, you know, the round man again, and there's, there's not this separation. So it's, it's, it's an interesting time because, you know, it's hard to say where this thing's going to come out. You know, we don't know, like, like you alluded to earlier, you you can't know. It's, it's, it's almost like a, a, Mm -hmm. a, a, a planet wide experiment that's going on. Yeah. And, you know, I think the divide in the Bible, it says, uh, you know, uh, the wheat will be separated from the chaff, you know, yeah. revela- revelations. There'll be those that rise and those that fall. Yeah. And I th- I don't think we have to look any further than than living by nature, walking with God or following the Tao yeah. to see which of these ideas are wrong <laughs> and which ones are right. Yeah. And there's going to be a great divide on the planet between good and evil. We're, I mean, it's, we're, it's a spiritual battle, but it's really at this time being manifest in the polarity that we're seeing and beyond it just being male, female, black, white, conservative, uh, liberal or Jew and Christian. Rather beyond all that, it's really just going to boil down to the two. It's, is this good and right yeah. and true? <laughs> Or is this wrong and this yeah. is bad and it's untrue? So, um, you know, one of the things that you're talking about, Elliot, as we're talking about this conflict of, of religious ideas and social ideas and sort of a melting down, it, in my mind, it really boils back to the difference between ethics and morals, you know, having looked into the issue of morals, morals differ from ethics in that morals are codes of conduct that are life affirmative. So something's moral, for example, thou shalt not kill is a biblical injunction that is life affirmative. But at the same time, we know religions have a long history of killing And as I often tell people, when I was a soldier in the 82nd Airborne Division, we had a soldier's manual, which is who to kill and who not to kill and under what circumstances and what do you do if you capture the enemy and what do you not do based on things like the Geneva Convention. But I tell people the soldier's manual is not a moral code, it's an ethical code because it's about killing. And... When you go to work for a corporation or a company, they usually have rules and regulations or ethics. This is what we do. This is how we handle customers. But what it seems to me is that there is, because religion in many ways is changing its face and it's becoming very broken up. Uh, I don't know if you've looked at the research on, on, uh, for example, how many branches of Christianity, but the latest estimates that there's 32,000 branches of Christianity claiming that they each have the actual truth. And they not only don't get along with each other, but their diet practices and their beliefs range wildly. So what I see and what how this relates to everything we're talking about with young people in the world is that 
we are actually losing touch with morals and capitalism has reached the point where it's absolutely immoral when you look at it from the perspective of nature and 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 survival of life itself and so i think it's it's going to be an interesting journey for the young people but for everybody to try to get clear on what is morality what are the things that we have to worship honor respect nurture and support for our own survival regardless of what race creed color religion or location on the planet you're in because we're at a point now where what we do in any one country immediately affects the other country i mean you're talking about things like nuclear meltdowns and crazy shit like bill gates is now funding a program to put chemicals in the atmosphere to block the sun to cool the earth down but they have no idea what the ramifications are going to be yeah um here's another one that you might not know about that blew my mind you, you've probably heard me say this before but steiner warned in the late 1800s that human life as we know it depends on two things And if those two things reach critically low levels, life will cease to exist as we know it. And those two things are bees and trees. Well, we've now cut down four-fifths of the world's forests. And bees are dying at a record pace all over the world. And recent research by um, entomologists shows that insect traffic is, in the last 50 years, has reduced 75% across the board from worldwide collaborations of studies And the paper that I read was titled something like Armageddon may be here because the insects are the sex organs of the planet. And the entomologists are saying, we don't know how much lower we can go on insects before the whole thing just collapses. And they're tracking it right back to use of pesticides and farming chemicals as wiping the insects out everywhere. So, so here, here, what do we see? We see capitalism, buy this product, put Roundup on the ground. These chemicals make everything grow faster. Um, get this instant gratification on 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 the uh Amazon you know <laughs> i don't know if you've had the experience but like i've ordered something and then ne- and either even that evening it's already at my doorstep and sometimes they'll send you like one box of vitamins in a box big enough to hold you know a, a chest of uh, a, a small suitcase worth of stuff <laughs> and it's just this huge box full of emptiness and so this is the kind of the the consumerism just gone completely wild and we've uprooted ourselves from what i call morals because those are the injunctions that are life affirmative and we see you know crazy stuff coming on like artificial intelligence and where that can go and uh we we see research showing that though people are making more contact than ever through mediums like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, etc., that the rate of anxiety, depression, and the feeling of isolation is on the rise. Progressively, they're showing that those forms of contact do not nourish us at a core human level. So it's, you know, it's... Uh, How do you feel from your own observation when you're working with young people? Where is their sense of morality with regard to what's important to pay attention to because it supports life versus just making money, uh, getting a job and uh, having the cool car, the cool clothes, the newest iPhone or whatever? 
Well, maybe I live in a in a bubble, but the people that I'm surrounded by, uh, they they're awake to the fact that what matters most, and I heard you say it on Aubrey's podcast, is taking care of the body because it's the interface by which our soul experiences this plane of existence. So a lot of uh, it's wonderful to see a lot of young men taking pride in how they care for their bodies rather than uh, putting. You know, for example, Instagram or social media or, you know, these superficial connections with other people first. You got to come home to your to yourself as number one. Yeah. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, it's kind of a general broad one, but I suspect you'll have a good answer for it. How important do you feel love is to the life process? Love. <laughs> well, I... Ha- I've recently been playing with a with a concept of love that that is simply equates it to uh, creativity. Mm-hmm. And so, love being creativity means being able to accept, or to look at, or to receive, or to experience anything and transmutate it in a moment into something that's life affirmative mm-hmm. through our own consciousness. Is basically what I'm saying, or to look at something that is that is ugly and see the beauty of it, beauty in it. Being able to transmutate any experience is something that's life affirmative, meaning that if you have a uh, maybe you lose a loved one or you have a, a tragic event happen in your life, being able to sit with that and allow it to nurture you rather than destroy you. So this capacity to love is a creative capacity to take absolutely anything, you know, because I don't think anything that comes to us is not meant to come to us and see the good in it, to see the light into it, into it, like transmutate, literally turn it into something that's affirmative rather than negative. If you had to create your own definition of love to define what it is, what would you describe it as? As you know, like just like if I said, what is water? And you said hydrogen to H2O, um, or what is food, uh, or what is exercise? What, what, do you, what do you think inside yourself that love is? Well, it's hard to say what love isn't, because in, in a way, <laughs> love is, is everything. Love, God is love. So the, you know, all of, God is ever, ever present and always here at, at, in every place mm-hmm. at all times. And I think it's the same with love. I think the human capacity to ignore, <laughs> I think the human capacity to have an ego separates us from love, makes us uh, perceive that there isn't love or to experience something and call it other than love. But I don't think that there's anywhere that love doesn't exist. I think it's all love. Yeah, I won't go into a long discussion of love, but something I look into a lot and research a lot and meditate on. But I, because of these issues, I developed two uh, definitions of love. Um, my first definition is that love is the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. Mm-hmm. So love is the flow of energy and information 
everything in the created universe is energy and information. Mm-hmm. Empathic means to feel the other person, compassionate to try to understand the other person. And since we all have a sense of I, this is my hand, this is my body, I'm tired, then love relates to our flow of energy and information and empathic and compassionate connection to ourselves first and foremost. And then we also love our cars and our our clothing and our houses and our homes. So we love persons, we love places, and we love things. And that's really what what there is in the world is persons, places, and things. I also define love as consciousness becoming aware of itself. So, uh, you know, because love is such a commonly used word, but it's like mind, you know, Daniel Siegel describes how gone, having gone to hundreds of conferences on, with psychiatrists and psychologists, not one of them had a definition of mind. So he, he, he worked with, I think, 40 top doctors and therapists to create a definition of mind. And, and so I think that part of our challenge is people have forgotten what they don't really have a sense of what love is. I think if we would have gone back and if we looked at some of the native cultures, they probably would have had a more clear sense of what love is. That would be my assumption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, to kind of simplify it, like I, I stand by saying God is love. Yeah. And so it's all of it. it it's, it's every piece of it. And then so when we're talking about the, the world that we're living in and, and you know, the separation that's occurring, those that are walking with God, I also like to, to equate God with the Tao, which, you know, the Taoist perspective is that it's all kind of pagan. It's all kind of like here. If you want to know God, just kind of pay attention to nature. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to be in love is to, <laughs> is to be walking with nature, doing what is actually natural. And, and if that's communication between two authentic people or, uh, just the, the, the nature that we walk through and experience and see, it's all love. Yes. And you know, the, the, uh, of course, I understand what you're saying, but the problem is whenever we use the word God, it has a million meanings that vary from person <laughs> to person. So, um, and then you have atheists that don't believe in God. So if they hear God mm-hmm. is love, they just throw it right out the window. <laughs> uh, I guess to them, matter is yeah. love. But, um, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time, I think, in many, many ways. Uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you know, I, I teach men that you're not fully a man until you can access your femininity and balance with your masculinity. Um, I won't go off on a long explanation of why that is. I figure you probably have your own sense of what that means. How important is it for you as a coach of uh, potentially millions of young men for them to have an awareness of the feminine elements of themselves and how would you uh, how do you go about teaching them to access that especially when you've noticed that so many of them are already feminized yeah right isn't that interesting well i gotta say paul when i first when i was in my first trip around the clock at age 23 24 when i met you the most 
the mind blowing amongst the many of the other things that you taught. One of the most mind blowing things that come to mind was viscerosomatic inhibition. Yeah. <laughs> when yeah. you taught that, that blew my mind. I was like, wait a second, it's all connected in the organs and the muscles. And then when I met you and uh, hired you for coaching in 2015 when we worked together. The, the second most, which now takes the cake, most profound thing that you said to me that blew my mind was was just that, was that, Elliot, in order for you to become fully man, <laughs> you have to become a woman first. <laughs> and, and at the time when you said it, I, I, I got it here. I, the concept I understood, I was like, okay, yeah, it makes sense. But it wasn't on... It's taken these past three years for me to actually embody that and to see the value in that. And man, if you don't choose it consciously, it's good. It's, it's going to happen to you regardless. And so for me, you know, being conscious of it was great. But, um, w one of the ways that I was able to come into contact with my femininity was through injuries. And I, I remember reading in Robert Bly's book, Iron John, a book about men, where he says every wound is a womb. Yes. And I don't know, yeah, I don't know if you know this, uh, but you do know that when we were doing coaching, right towards the end, I tore my right bicep. Right. I had, yeah. And that was just the beginning. I also uh, tore my Achilles tendon. Wow. Two, two significant injuries. Oh my God. And I mean, I could go all into all the reasons why, but I know this is my soul's path and I know it had a lot to do with me learning that yielding part, part of myself. Yes. I needed to come into contact with that soft, yielding, receptive, you know, in the poem, when he talks about a womb being a womb, he literally says that each wound to the body is like an opening similar to a vagina where God can come in and plant a seed for something new to grow. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so these, these past few years have been me becoming a woman yeah, and, uh, and what it has afforded me. I mean, now I literally, I, it's right this year in particular, but like these past few months, maybe since the summer, I literally feel myself coming out of this tunnel. I feel the, the, the things that were being broken down are now being put back together. And now I can see myself fully as a man. I can accept that now because I've, been down that feminine dark hole. <laughs> and so, yeah, I've been in the hole. I went back in, got broken down and reconstituted. Constituated. Yeah. When you use the word uh, uh, digestion, too, it's the same, same sort of thing that happened to me, you know, being rent, being torn apart physically, mentally, spiritually, to be put back together again. Yeah. So that was that was my experience with it. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I offer you so much, uh, uh, thanks for just making me aware when speaking with young men, maybe not being thrust upon them just yet as I'm, you know, I was approaching middle age and I kind of grew up pretty quickly. So it's at middle age that I imagine that most men, I, I know that most men will have that transition. That's when testosterone begins to drop. That's when, you know, we, we transition into that next phase so you're going to confront the inner woman yeah but when i'm talking to a young man who's 24 and i don't i don't want him to be a woman <laughs> no he doesn't want to be a woman and i don't want him to be a woman because it's not time yet he's supposed to be picking up his sword and going hard yeah what i offer him in terms of being able to get in touch with his softness are the the many of the rituals 
that I learned from you, you know, drinking water, for example, yeah. is it cools. It's, yeah. a, it's feminizing in that it cools a hot body. So just staying hydrated, resting. One, yeah. of, the, one of the things that I tell all young men to invest in, and it sounds like a joke, and I was just at a, at a workshop the other day, and they thought I was joking, but I told them that they need a hammock. One kid was telling me, Elliot, how do I have more energy? I was like, you need a nap. Yeah. You need to rest. Just take a nap during the day. Yeah. You don't need to push any harder because, in fact, you're, you're burning yourself out and it's not going to last long. I was able to do that for quite a while until I hit the wall. Yeah. But I think if you take regular, just take a day off and lay around. Literally just be lazy. Have no agenda. Wake up and loaf around. Do that once a week. Do it once a month. But you, you need that coolness. You need that cool down opportunity that allows you to tap into the intelligence of the feminine, which expresses itself as intuition. You'll be surprised at how many brilliant ideas you're going to come up with or solutions to problems you didn't know you had just by stopping the, the extroversion and the constant going and the masculine uh, reaching and grabbing. And just sink in and be still and relax and breathe for a moment. You'll really actually even get more done. Yes. Those are all things I agree with totally. And, um, you know, some of the ways I educate young men, and, and I work with a lot of them. You know, I'm, I've got a, a, a professional baseball player here. He's 22. And he's solid as rock. I mean, he's a hardworking guy. And... You know, I've coached many, Mike Salemi, who has reached the top of the kettlebell world. And, uh, you know, you know, I've worked with piles of top athletes in the world. But when someone's in that stage, you know, telling them they need to be more like a woman just spins them. But <laughs> what I do explain to them is something, some simple things. I say, well, look, whenever you're doing an exercise, you have a concentric phase which is accelerating a weight away from your body or when a muscle shortening. So excuse me, not accelerating the weight away from your body. But if you're, if you're in the concentric phase, there's muscle shortening. So the weights somehow, like if you're doing a biceps curl, it's coming to you, but then there's the release phase. So the concentric is the action of moving. The eccentric is the action of controlling or lowering. So the concentric mm -hmm. is the masculine. The eccentric is the feminine. If you throw a medicine ball to somebody, that's masculine. But if you have to catch it, that's feminine. Mm -hmm. If you jump, it's masculine. When you're leaving the ground, it's feminine when you're receiving the ground. Mm -hmm. So I say to them, if you're, if you're able to jump higher than you can land, then you have a male-female imbalance that will get you broken. Mm -hmm. If you can... If you can... Um, uh, if you don't pay attention to how you balance concentric and eccentric forces, then you'll get broken. Mm -hmm. If uh, acceleration is masculine, deceleration is feminine. So mm -hmm. supination is acceleration. It's a masculine force. Pronation, which is mm -hmm. controlling forces and, and landing and, and decelerating. That's all feminine. Um, rising up with the sun and, and elevated cortisol is masculine, but as the sun's going down, you're going into the feminine cycle of the day. 
And lo、mm-hmm. and behold, look how many young men and women stay up all hours of the night while trying to push their bodies, while trying to do good, you know, kettlebell lifting, CrossFit sports. But they don't, you know, like I saw a study recently. The average college student's only getting about five hours of sleep a night.、Mm-hmm. So there's a, a complete abortion of the feminine, a, a, a,、right. a detachment from the feminine. And then, of, of course, all the things that you said earlier are true. But I also say, look, you're, as an athlete, you're inevitably going to get injured. I don't care how good of a coach or therapist I am; it's just part of it. Just like if you ride in a motocross, if you train for motocross, you will fly off that bike. There's just、mm-hmm. there's no one in the world that rides a motorcycle at high speed for any length of time on a track before they have a dirt sandwich, and it's just a given. <laughs> and and so what I tell them is, if one way to really understand the importance of accessing your feminine is that. When you get injured, it's your time to mother yourself and to nurture、mm-hmm. the injury and to be honest about what you need at that time, as opposed to what you think you do got to do because it's written on paper or some coach is pressuring you to be this or be that. And it's when we're children and we get injured, it's usually our mothers that are doing the nurturing and helping us through、mm-hmm. our our illness or our cold or our injury. But if we're too much like our fathers, then what would ha- what I see athletes doing is re-injuring and re-injuring and re-injuring, and and、yep. that's just fire on top of fire. So those are some of the kind of key principles that I think at the in the younger crowd, they all they they once you get good at that, it opens the door. Another key principle that I think is very feminine is is the act of listening, actually listening,、mm. you know. Men are like perpetually sword fighting, and that becomes an intellectual process. You know, for example, I'm sure you've had this. I put a video on YouTube, and someone writes me back some kind of nasty long critique. But I can tell by what they're saying that they only watched three and a half minutes of a forty <laughs> minute video, and they've already got it in their head that they know exactly what I'm saying, and that I'm wrong. And so there's excessive masculinization of the mind, and they're not being receptive to the message. They're not waiting for a conclusion. It's just ready, fire, aim behavior, and that's very, very, you know, masculine.、Mm-hmm. So as we, to as you know, to heal ourselves, because you've been through this, you have to really listen to your body. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah. And. When a, when a, it was no longer a concept for me. It was practice. Yes, it's practice or pain, right?、Mm-hmm. And when a when when we have infants and, and that don't have any language yet, whether you're a man or a woman, you know you can't ask the child what is it that you need. You can't say, "Are you too hot? Are you too cold? Are you hungry?" Dot dot dot.、Mm-hmm. We we have to go into deep listening mode and feel and. Mothers are very wired for that, but fathers can do it as well if they shift into their feminine instead、mm-hmm. of just saying "shut up, you little bugger," <laughs>、mm-hmm. eat, go to sleep.、Um, yeah. So I think that when we become our own parent and start with our body and grow into parenting us through our own emotional growth, and then looking at how we're using our mind, you know, we could. I remember back a long time ago. I don't know if you ever remember who Mel Sif was.、Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, he was just brutal. 
you know, yep. and on his forum, I can't remember what his forum was called, but he used to go at me tooth and nail, you know, and, yep. <laughs> and, and, and he used to just piss me off. I'd stay up till two, three in the morning writing 40 page responses to his <laughs> attacks on me, you know, and, and I remember reading those too. Yeah. Well, you know, I would get intense with him and I used to get lots of emails from people going, oh my God, you're the only person I've ever seen that can you know, put the fire to him as hard as he puts it to you. And, uh, and there was a guy who was highly masculine and lo and behold, he died in his fifties of a heart attack. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I yep. used to say to people, that guy's got so much anger in him. I don't know how long he can last. And sure enough, yeah. he, he imploded. Um, but my point is I've had to learn myself to say, okay, when do I engage? When do I not engage? And when is somebody so masculinized it won't matter how loving and nurturing they are to you because they don't even have an interest in your opinion. They just want to use your forum to make sure everyone hears how loud their voice is, which is very, very masculine, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, I think we're all on quite a, a phenomenal evolution here. Um, just, just so we don't run you over time, if you took your life experience now and your work uh, on yourself, which I congratulate you, you've done a lot, you know, you really were, I've, I can see a big difference in you from when I first met you. I mean, it's night and day. You have, uh, you know, a hundred percent more mother energy in you than you used to. <laughs> yeah. And it shows up in your body and in your field, like, um, Somebody once, uh, several people said something to me once after I hurt my neck really bad, which you know about, and mm -hmm. I lost, you know, 26 pounds of muscle and couldn't even carry a briefcase for over a year. <laughs> um, people said to me, Paul, you're so much more approachable. I used to be afraid to mm -hmm. talk to you. I was afraid if I was wrong, you might choke hold me or cut my head off or something. <laughs> and, and I look back and see the it, very, very frightening um, ego dismantling process that that womb put me into, you know, <laughs> the birth canal mm -hmm. of of finding that feminine nurture and, and accepting myself as fragile, which I've mm -hmm. I'm not a guy that did well with fragile. <laughs> you know, I grew up in an ass kicker environment and and I see that in uh, you. I see, too, that you've got um, you've got that. Um, receptivity, um, openness, softness. And, um, it's, I've gotten to watch in, in my time that I've known you and, and, you know, it's been a long time. I, I don't know how many years it's probably what 15 years, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've gotten to see you go from total badass strong man. I'll flip your fucking car over and tear you in half. Yes. To, um, I'm in pain. I'm frustrated. I, you know, mm -hmm. I remember, you know, in the beginning when you were following my programs, you were going through quite an adjustment and, mm -hmm. and like resting and all these other things. And then, oh. then, you know, you, you embrace that. And then you went through your birthing of the injuries and that transforms you. And I think you've had mm -hmm. so much exposure to people that you've had kind of quite a comprehensive, um, internship in life itself and so i really i really see that you're really walking the tightrope very nicely between the masculine and the feminine because you've 
gone through your digestive and your birthing process. So how does it feel to you? How old are you now, Elliot? 39. So how does it feel to you? That's interesting. Paul Jr. is 39, so you could be my son. <laughs> um, how does it feel to you now approaching 40, uh, living inside of Elliot as Elliot each day? Is it easier? Is it scary? Or where, where are you at with this whole um, maturation process? Calm. Yeah. I feel relaxed. Good. You know, I was listening to Robert Moore talk about King Warrior Magician Archetypes. Yeah. Uh, and he went through each one of them and he described what it would feel like to be a warrior. And I was like, that's all me. I got that one. Yeah. And then he went through the others. But when he got to King and he said, when you're calm, when you have no more anxiety, when you can just be, mm-hmm. that's when you've integrated the other three and you can just be at your Axis Monday, be at your center. And so I feel more centered than I've ever felt ever before. I had a lot of anger. (laughs) Anger was my driving fuel. You know, uh, a lot of people ask me about like, how how did I become so quote unquote successful so quickly? And I was like, man, anger and fear are very powerful motivators. And I was angry and I was scared and it just made me go. So I mean, I built my business raised my family and became a professional strongman all at the same time yeah yeah (laughs) i wasn't calm at all no i'm grateful for the momentum that that's created but i'm so grateful now that i can just be yeah great it's good that you've done that because a midlife crisis is what occurs when the ego no longer has the energy to reinflate the persona it's manufactured <laughs> because it's 50. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I couldn't do it any longer. <laughs> He's like, this being Elliot Hulse, this is one big fucking blow up doll, man. It's a lot of pumping. Someone pump this thing up for me. <laughs> and, so, and then I'm popping. I'm trying to pop. Yeah. I'm popping all over the place. Like, all right, the container doesn't fit me any longer. Well, but the one thing I think, I'm sure there's multiple things, but one thing that I've been able to witness having worked with you and knowing about some of the inner processes you were going through, um, I think observing you that one of the sort of the angels that's lifting your wings a lot is that you have embraced creativity to where having to output so much material used to be very stressful for you. And it is for a lot of us that are high outputters and high achievers, but it seems to me where you used to have this constant pressure, the need to have new content and to have something novel and to share it's, I get the sense that, you're now more open to the flow of spirit and you're not working so hard as Elliot, but you're more connected to the wholeness of things. And it's flowing through you as creativity, as opposed to you having to manufacture it so much. Is that observation accurate? Yes. One of my teachers put it this way. He said, uh, when you have an egg, the difference between life, life and death is that the egg will crack from within. Yeah. And that's life. And if it's cracked from without, that's death. And I totally feel that create that creates. Where before I was cracking eggs, I was making omelets. Crack, yeah. crack, crack. 
now I feel it just it emerging. My creative I don't create anything. I I don't do anything. That's what I tell people now. I don't do anything. I don't do anything any longer. These things just I I don't do anything until I'm doing it. These yeah. things just come out of me. Mm-hmm. So creatively, you know, where I was doing it out of fear and out of anger and I was creating all those YouTube videos that created tremendous momentum. When I stopped, <laughs> I do things that I was never doing before. Like, for example, I decorated my home for Christmas the first time this year. I'm up on a ladder. I'm putting up icicle lights on the top. I wrapped up all the all the uh, the columns with stuff. I got a nine foot Santa and a and a Jesus in the nativity. <laughs> I decided I'm gonna do it. I'm going all out. I'm gonna be the most creative Christmas celebrator this year. I mean, I've resisted Christmas for years. For five, five, six years, I resisted Christmas and all the reasons why not. But this thing came up in me this year that was like, Elliot, be Christmas this year. Yeah. And I've just had the greatest time being creative, putting up Christmas decorations all over my, inside and outside house. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because one of the things I've said in lectures and classes a thousand times especially to dogmatic Christians and religious people, as I say, you'd be far better to trade your God in for Santa Claus. <laughs> Santa, mm-hmm. Claus is, yeah. <laughs> Santa Claus is loving to everybody. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, so I became Santa Claus this year. Yeah. So, hey, once again, congratulations on everything, on your journey, on your family, on your success, on your sharings, on your... Uh, connection to spirit on your um future offerings and um on your transition to balancing the masculine and the feminine and uh i i hope to uh, have many more of these interviews yeah paul thank you thank you. I, again i'm so honored to be on the show here with you i remember there was a time where it was my dream just to speak with you <laughs> i remember that wow one day i might speak to paul <laughs> and then to be on your show here with you, I mean, like I said, it, it's mind-blowing. And then also, too, I want to congratulate you on your evolution in business. Uh, you know, I met you on VHS tapes. Yeah. And I know things have evolved so much since then. And you went to DVDs. And to see the upgrades on your website and to see you in social media now and to make making the YouTube videos and the and the, uh, the podcast, which none of were around when I – I first came in contact with you and knowing, you know, through our conversations that it was, there was a little bit of a a struggle there trying to figure it all out. But most recently, I guess mostly this year, you know, watching you and following what you've been doing. It's like the time for your explosion onto the scene through the internet and social media has just come. And it's so exciting to see. Thank you. I, I think that everything happens at the right time for the right reason, and and you know I've I've had um, I've had two to learn to manage my fire, and um, uh, I just think that spirit wanted me to to get to fifty seven years of age so that I could interface with. Uh, a large cross section of the of the audience at different ages and 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 get to where I could have something of a Santa Claus gift for everyone from little kids all the way to old people. And so I think that it, the timing is, it was part of the, was 
spirit digesting me to get me to where I can share my heart without offending people, even though you know that's impossible to do. But instead of hammering an issue so hard, I can say, let's flip the coin on it, look at both sides, and I leave you to make up your own mind. So it, uh, you know, my evolution and your evolution and all of us are going through very much the same process. That's what archetypes do. And that's what the collective unconscious has in it is this digestive system, right? And ultimately, I think what you and I are both doing is sharing our experiences and our love with the intention of helping other people get to where we got more efficiently and mm -hmm. maybe do it with less injuries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, less pain. I'm a glutton for pain. Yeah, well, pain is the great awakener for sure. Um, mm -hmm. what, what is it that you would like to make everybody on my podcast aware of that uh, Elliot Hulse is offering now, has next, or um, where to find more? Well, one of the bigger projects that we're working on right now is uh, Strength Camp International. So... You know, I started a gym, uh, strength camp, and it was, I did it during my strongman days. And so there's a lot of, you know, strength and conditioning and strongman. And, you know, it's kind of a hardcore gym, even though I'm not as hardcore as I once was. I now have great coaches that run the gym and people love the program. And we've done so well in our, our lazy little city, Petersburg, which I literally call lazy because uh, it, was, it has been invoked. This is the laziest city in America. <laughs> and so to have strength so well in lazy city, but we're on to some, something business-wise. So over the last few years, we've been working with what we strength camp ambassadors, but those are other young men mostly who want to own their own gym. And we help them with, uh, with all the business systems, all the training systems, all of the marketing uh, and platform. And it's, it's going really well. So... That's, you know, strengthcampinternational.com is we're working on that. Otherwise, if you're interested in some of the things that Paul were talking about, I love talking about this stuff. So Google and Elliot Hudson, whatever you find, I'm sure you'll, you'll like. <laughs> There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, lots of love to you, partner. Namaste. Love to you all. Look forward to uh, seeing what you come up with next. And uh, thank you for educating the young men of our country and many countries deliver my consciousness to the planet like you yeah <laughs> thank you for listening to living 4d with paul check and today's guest elliot hulse you can connect with elliot on instagram at elliot hulse on his strength camp youtube channel youtube.com forward slash strength camp or via his website elliothulse.com. That's E-L-L-I-O-T-T-H-U-L-S-E.com. Find Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on YouTube. Search for Living4D with Paul Check. You can watch more about Paul on his blog at paulchecksblog.com. That's P-A-U-L-C-H-E-K-S-B-L-O-G.com or on the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog.